I'd like to invite you to turn, if you're using the Sanctuary Bible, to Mark chapter 1, uh, which is on page 1,090, oh no, pardon me, 990, 990. As I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> this is the story, actually it's the beginning, it's the, sort of the preamble to Mark, which mentions, among other things, the baptism of Jesus. And I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 15, so a little bit more than we have in the bulletin there. I'll say a few words of introduction about this passage, though, too, is that I want to focus today on some of the transitions that we see in this passage. I'll get into them later, but God is, God is an active God. He's a living God. Living things are always changing. They're always growing. They're always transforming into something new. That's just the nature. And so since we have a living God, he's always changing, uh, although at some, in some ways he's always the same in terms of his faithfulness to us. And as living things, we're always changing, but there are some central things that we want to keep the same. Um, and we see in... The, the reading that Brian gave us from, first, uh, from Genesis 1, a huge transition, the biggest transition that ever was, from nothingness, void, into createdness and life and the world and the universe as we know it. And so we have this uh, kind of imagery of the Holy Spirit hovering over this undifferentiated chaos, the void, the waters of the deep, and, and almost as if the Spirit is sort of containing it there or guarding it. And this is some, this sort of this matter or elements of life that God hasn't yet engaged or enlisted into creation. Um, it's, it's amazing how this, if you, if you subscribe to the Big Bang Theory of the origin of our universe, how similar this sounds. I, I think it's kind of exciting as astrophysicists and physicists, theoretical physicists, get closer to figuring out some of these particles and things. My sense is that it's going to look more and more and more like Genesis 1 in some weird ways, you know. Uh, that there's this chaos, this churning, and that in this moment, then God initiates a transition in the universe by speaking into it. And um, God's simple word is, let there be light and there was light. And, and that's like, like a giant explosion at the beginning of the universe, full of light, full of matter, full of energy, bursting forth. And um, <clears throat> so the transition in our Old Testament reading is initiated by God's voice speaking and moving things forward, but it's also accompanied by the activity of the Spirit, and it's connected in some way to water. The Old Testament and even the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament, water was, yes, it was a symbol of life, but also it was a symbol of chaos. Sometimes when they talked about the waters and the deep, that was a chaotic place. We were just in Hawaii, and if you look out on the ocean, it's churning and moving all the time. Sometimes it sucks you in, sometimes it pushes you back. It's a chaotic thing. And so water has this uh, chaotic, dangerous sort of imagery associated with it, as well as this life-giving, nurturing, cleansing. Uh, and, and we want to keep all these, those things together. So, but all that to say that when God initiates transitions, it is accompanied by his voice, um, the spirit is at work, and there, at least in a lot of these cases, there's some connection to water. So we're going to look at that. Pay attention to those 
elements as we read now from the beginning of Mark, which has an eerie beginning that sounds a lot like the beginning to Genesis. So Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15. Let's read. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've said, there's some transitions that happen in the Bible from nothingness to createdness. And I want to highlight, if you're taking notes, there's three transitions in this text that I want to highlight. All of them are important, all of them significant, and they all work together. And I'm just going to dive right in. First off, there's a people transition. There's a people transition. A transition from John and his ministry to Jesus. And in fact, Mark's gospel, even though it starts with the words about Jesus Christ, the narrative of John, uh, pardon me, Mark's gospel starts with the, uh, John the Baptist. So this is a gospel about Jesus, but it, it takes its beginning with John. And John's ministry pre-existed Jesus' ministry. John was at work, as it says, baptizing people in the Jordan River, going out into the wilderness, acting like sort of a crazy person, eating weird food. But people were drawn to him, and they were drawn to his message of repentance and baptism for the cleansing of their sins. And so that ministry was going on, but at some point, that ministry had to transition from the personality of John the Baptism, Baptist to the, the person and the personality of Jesus. So that's one transition. And just to say a few things about that. One is that they were cousins. We, we see this from the story uh, of the um, Magnificat. Um, Mary and Elizabeth were related, and so John and Jesus were related. And John had his own disciples. They were disciples of John who were there at the river with him. 
some of John's disciples became Jesus' disciples. They kind of got enlisted into the Jesus movement. But some of them stuck with John. Some of them stayed with him. Later on in the Gospels, we read that John is in prison. He kind of doubts if Jesus really is the one who, said he, who he said he was. And so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one or should we wait for somebody else? And even in that lack of faith or trust, Jesus says some nice things about John. He says he's the greatest of all the prophets. Uh, tell him what you've seen. The, 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 the blind see, the lame walk, um, the dead uh, come back to life. So John's disciples, most of them probably became Jesus' disciples at this point. And so the, the leader of the movement, whatever this movement was, the John movement became the Jesus movement. And John lost the leadership of it, so to speak, or gave it up. And Jesus took it on in this moment. It's a transition of staffing. It's a transition of like a new CEO search, if you want to think of it that way, right? Um, and John himself participated in this transition. He, he said these really dramatic things. He said, I'm almost done, but after I'm done, somebody is going to come after me who is the one I've actually been preparing you for, who's far more powerful than I am. And he's going to do things differently. I can't even touch his shoes. He's so great. And my, the ministry I've been doing among you is, is great baptism for the repentance of sins. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's a lot more power at his fingertips. And elsewhere, John says that I must decrease about himself. He says, I have to, I have to fade into the background and Jesus has to increase. He has to go to the front. And so John even participates in this personal people transition from himself to Jesus. So that's the first transition from, from a people transition. The second is a geographic transition. The ministry is out in the wilderness. People go out to it. It's something that's kind of like church. You have to come to it, you know. The next part of the ministry is out in the world. It actually goes to where people are. It goes to where people are living and finds them. And with the transition from John to Jesus comes a geographic transition away from the Jordan River and the Jordan River Valley, which is kind of a lowland near Jerusalem, and up to sort of the highlands of Palestine, which is where, where Galilee is, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus goes and heads after his temptation in the wilderness. He goes up to his hometown, his home county, so to speak, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where people knew him, which was both a good thing because they knew him and it was also a bad thing because they knew him because they said, well, who is this guy? We, we saw him growing up. I don't, I don't see how he could be anything that great. Yet he continued to defy their expectations. <clears throat> What's important about him, two things are important about him going up to Galilee. One was that he was starting to meet people where they were. He wasn't requiring people to come to him. This is the incarnational move that God makes. He enters the world and finds people where they are, not setting up shop in the wilderness and hoping people will make the trek out there. But the other is that among the people he met up there, two of them were particularly important. First, that's the Sea of Galilee is where he was able to meet Peter, and that's where he was able to enlist him into his uh, group of 12. And uh, you get this person like Peter, who's a complex person. We, uh, we spoke in Bible study this morning about the heroes of the Bible, and just about all of them really aren't that great. I mean, there's parts of them that are great, 
And there's another part of them that's really complex and broken and somehow get redeemed by God despite all their foibles. And um, we talked about when is it that we start telling our children that all these great people in the Bible aren't so great? And the answer is, I don't know. You know, you probably you let them read it themselves and they come to you with questions. But we'll make a really big mistake if we act like there's these sort of supermen, superwomen in the Bible that make no mistakes. Uh, that's not how it is. That's not how life is. And so you have somebody like Peter who was so incredibly important but yet flawed and was a real betrayer. And um, when I was traveling in in Israel with a, with a tour, we went up to the Sea of Galilee, and I met this man. He was actually one of the men who found this old fishing boat that, in the mud, and it was really well-preserved. It's a great archaeological find from about the time of Jesus. And I met this man, and he had been a fisherman all his life, and he was small. He had dark hair. He had gray eyes. He had giant hands, gnarled and calloused and he had this easy smile on his face. He had simple clothes. It was really one of those weird moments where I thought, this could be Peter, this guy I'm talking to right now. Because he just, he had been a fisherman in that lake all his life. And I could just imagine that that's probably what, I could be wrong. You know, we don't know. There's no, there's no portraits of Jesus or Peter or any of these people uh, in the way portraiture is done. But I had this sense of, of connection with this guy and he was jovial he was kind he was nice he was sort of a man of the sea of the lake really and it struck me is this is somebody you want on your side he's somebody who loves the sea but he's willing to follow you away from the sea up to the mountains to the coast into the valleys and in Peter's case finally all the way to Jerusalem and so it was important for Jesus to go to Galilee so that he could meet Peter and it was important for Jesus to go to Galilee so he could meet somebody named Levi we read about that in the very next chapter, Mark chapter 2. Levi, the tax collector, sitting at his table, Jesus comes up to him and says, follow me. And immediately he folds up his table and he follows Jesus and he throws a party for Jesus and invites all his tax collector and prostitute friends to come to this meal. And Jesus comes too. And for Jesus, that was really one of the most important things that he did was to break social convention and have table fellowship with unwanted people, with people that had no honor. That was huge. It says in Mark chapter 2 that the Pharisees witnessed him doing that and hated it. And we know all along that from a lot of those encounters, they were plotting ways to get rid of Jesus. And so going to the cross had to go through Galilee. Going to the cross had to go through these connections and people and meals that Jesus went to. Um, Levi is the apostle whom we also know as Matthew. That's his other name. A lot of the apostles have two names, but Levi is also Matthew. And it's possible that while we call this the gospel of Mark, Mark was really just the scribe who wrote down what Peter said. Maybe. We don't know. It's a good bet. And the other is that the Matthew, who is this Levi at the lake, is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So by going up to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was able to enlist two of, his gospel, two of the four of his Gospel writers. It is an important trip. So this was the transition. A geographic transition that was both to find people that were important to what he was doing and also to be incarnational, to go to where people were and to call them to follow him instead of, from a distance, invite them to come to some remote place. 
important. So again, our first transition was a people transition from John to Jesus. The second transition was a geographical transition from the lowlands of the Jordan up to the highlands of Galilee where he met important people that were necessary to him. And the third is a transition of the message of this movement. It's very important. This is the bestest for the last year. John was preaching repentance. Good stuff. Stuff that we need. You're a sinner. You're broken. Your life's a mess. Uh, you need help. People respond to that. People respond to that a lot. And there were a lot of people that said all of Judea came down. Now, this could be a bit of a hyperbole. Thank you, hyperbole. It could be a little bit of a hyperbole that the whole region of Judea came down to the Jordan to be baptized. It probably is hyperbole. But what it means is a whole lot of people were interested in what John was doing and responded to what John was doing. A lot of people came down and were baptized by him. A lot of people felt the need for repentance. It kind of points out that there was a void in terms of anyone calling anyone to repentance in that society. Once somebody finally said, repent, your life is broken, it clicked with people and the movement started. And so they came down. But not just them, the Pharisees, it says the Pharisees and the other leaders came down not to get baptized, but to kind of see what was happening. To kind of, because they didn't think. They didn't think they needed to repent. They thought they had kept the law perfectly. We read in other parts uh, of the Gospels, Matthew 3, for example, that John insults them terribly when they come down and yet fail to repent. So this was a ministry of preparation. Repenting your sins is a preparation for something else that's going to happen. And uh, we see even in Mark's gospel here, we, we read in the first verse that John was the one who was to come and prepare the way for Jesus. And in verses 2 and 3, which are quotations from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, that John is the one who prepares the way for Jesus, somebody, a voice out in the wilderness. And that's what he was, out in the wilderness. John needed to do what he was doing so that Jesus could do what Jesus did. Jesus needed John to begin the ministry with the word of repentance, the word of repentance. And that's true for us. We, this is kind of intuitive. People need to repent before they can receive the good news. And why is that? Because it's not good news if there's no bad news about your soul. If, if you don't think there's any bad news about your soul, the good news isn't good. It's just news. It's just news about something that doesn't really touch you or matter to you. But if you're convicted in your soul about your own sin, if you're broken like King David was when he cheated with Bathsheba and was confronted by the prophet Nathan, his heart was broken, then the good news is good. It's incredibly good. But you don't know it's good until you hear the bad news. Not, you don't know the gospel is the gospel until you hear the word of repentance from John the Baptist. So the transition is one from repentance to gospel. It's one from law to grace. It's one from um, shame and brokenness to wholeness and new life. It's beautiful. It's the transition. And it goes with that, that transition from John to Jesus. Um, The message is, is all, this is all linked together. John and Jesus, the Jordan and Galilee, repentance and the gospel. They, they're all connected to each other, as you can see. And uh, 
I wanted to find this one thought I had lost here. Um, so Jesus, Jesus didn't give up on repenting, repentance. As we read in verse 15, he also told people to repent. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, he didn't, it's not like Jesus could operate in the vacuum of somebody else did the repentance work for me, now I can just talk about the gospel. That's not how Jesus operated. The, the, the repentance work had to happen to prepare the way for Jesus, but Jesus kept that as part of the message. Again, the good news is only good if you know what the bad news uh, really is. So, I said that God is always transitioning things, people, the world. Um, and I want you to think about your baptism. And if you haven't been baptized as an adult, I imagine almost everybody here has, but if you haven't been baptized as an adult, come, come see me because it, that might be a good thing for you to do for all sorts of reasons, but we could talk about that. But I want you to think about the time you were baptized. And if you were baptized as an infant, think about the time when you had an affirmation of your baptism through confirmation or something like that. Um, God had a transitioning moment in your life when you were baptized. There were many that were before your baptism and probably many that followed your baptism. But your baptism itself is a dramatic moment of God's activity in your life. And I, I encourage you to remember your baptism. I encourage you to remember that day. I encourage you to remember what was said and done that day. To think about the decisions you made before you were baptized and what was different in your life after you were baptized. Because God was at work in that moment. One of the things that God does in our baptism is that he speaks into the chaos of our lives and brings about order. He separates darkness from light in that moment. He does things. He, he kind of quelches the chaos, although the chaos has a way of popping back up into all our lives. Uh, like I said, you should see the floor of my car with all of the children's artworks and things like that and drawings of Sonic the Hedgehog. It's chaos in there. But I'm not just talking about my car. I'm talking about my life. Chaos can pop back up again. But God in his power has the ability to separate light from darkness and show us what real, things really are and to, uh, in fact, reverse the entropy of the universe, if you know what I'm talking about. As we get more mature spiritually, God has this ability to help us figure out when we're stuck about this question of the message between John and Jesus. Uh, I think we can be so much about calling people to repentance and usually not ourselves, but other people. We like to know what other people are doing that's wrong, and we don't always look at ourselves. That we never extend grace to them. We live in just a John the Baptist world, and we never get out of it. And on the other side of it is we only talk about grace, and we can avoid to call this call to repentance because it's not polite. Because it's kind of awkward. Because we don't like to call people to account for their behavior or our own behavior. And so we go straight to grace without examining what makes us broken and what makes other people broken or seeking to repair any relationships. Jesus never gets stuck like this, which is what's so great about him. He keeps these things in perfect balance. Repent and believe the good news. I don't condemn you, he says to the woman caught in adultery, but go and sin no more, he also says to her too. It's both, it's both and. And he loves us too much not to confront our behavior, but he also loves us too much not to leave us in that place of confrontation, but then to give us the new life that flows out of him. 
All of these things, I think, get started when you're baptized. This road to spiritual maturity, this uh, reduction of chaos, this bifurcation of light and darkness. Um, And your baptism is, we think of it as a one-time event. I want to encourage you to think of your baptism as a daily event, or at least you could have a daily reminder of that one event. God is always pouring water into this world. God is always pouring it into our lives. He's always inviting us to re-experience what he did in us. And um, our baptism is with us all our lives, I would say. It's, I, I would hate for us to, to put it in a box and put it on the shelf and say, that happened when I was 14 and that was great, but now I'm done. No, your baptism is this moment when you became available to God. When you went under the water and the Spirit descended, and God spoke, and transition began to happen in your life. And if you're alive, you're still transitioning. And if you're connected to God, God is still interested in what changes in your life. And a lot of that is tied up in your baptism, which is why if you're not baptized, baptized you might want to be, because it's all tied up in this. It's tie, tied up in Jesus' example of being baptized as well by John the Baptism. One last thing. We go through transition all our lives. We're always changing. Uh, we look at a, we have a seven-month-old baby. No, he's eight months old. Uh, uh, weeks. Eight weeks old. Eight weeks old. I can't believe how much he's changed in eight weeks. And of course, it's very rapid when they're babies. Six-year-olds look the same from week to week, you know? But, but eight-week-olds look different every day. But that just goes to show that we're, we're always changing. We're always growing sometimes in the wrong directions, and God needs to prune us back onto the path. Um, in a larger sense, churches are living things. Churches are living things. They grow, they change, they transition all the time. Um, people come into the church and become part of the family. Other people leave the church and go to other churches or move to other places in the world. That's normal. That's natural. That happens. It's not something to to lament or regret. It's just life. It's just how things go. And um, living things are always changing. They're always growing. And healthy plants, healthy plants, healthy churches are pruned and fertilized so that they can be more productive for the landlord. Um, So some things change. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in a church. It's just the life cycle of the church that God... And and there's some... If we look for it, I think we can find some work of God in it sometimes. One thing I sense about our church in particular is that there might be some Peters and some Levi's in this room that don't know that they're Peters or Levi's yet. There are some people that are going to be tapped on the shoulder and asked to do great things for the kingdom. And there might be some Peters and Levi's out there in this world that we haven't met yet, but somehow we're going to have to go to Galilee and find them and enlist them into the work that God has for us here. Uh, They just haven't been invited yet. They haven't been found. They haven't been asked to leave their table and to follow us. In our Veritas conversations, sometimes we've talked about how much larger this church used to be. I guess the pews used to be more full. Right now, they're not terribly full. I see a lot of orange out there, you know. Not your faces, the, the cloth behind you. You know what? Um, 
the information that the church used to be bigger and have more people in it, that's important information. But it's not particularly useful information right now. It doesn't really help me. It doesn't really matter. What matters is who is here right now in this room. What matters is who is, is involved in what God is doing in the next stage of this church's life, in the transition that God has for us going forward. Uh, and what matters is who is available to the Spirit? Who is willing to let God keep transitioning them and the ministry of the church as the Spirit guides it? And I'm personally excited to see what the Spirit will do. We actually have more than enough people to do anything that God asks us to do. We have far more enough than enough resources and people to do what God will have us do because it's God's, God's going to be the one giving us the orders. He can do anything with 12 people, right? He can do anything with one person. If you add up all the people in our church, including the children, there's about 80 of us. That's, that's like a luxury of, of people in God's economy. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the Spirit will do. We have everything we need, but all we have to do is go under the water, come up out of it, receive the Spirit's guidance, and then start to move. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you gave us life, life that's always changing, life that's always growing. We thank you that you call into our lives and send your spirit to us so that we can move forward to do the things that you ask us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.